Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I think most people, if they hear a compelling story about a need, are willing to give. If you look at disaster situations and look how generous Americans are, as soon as they hear about something like a Hurricane Sandy happening and they want to go help people, they rush to do that sort of thing right away. Understanding the natural impulse to give and how charities can improve their interactions with the people who donate. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Roughly 9 in 10 American households contribute to charity each year, and while the annual total varies with the economy, U.S. giving in recent years has amounted to roughly $300 billion. It's an enormous outpouring of generosity by Americans rich and poor. Dan Pallotta, who has worked as a fundraiser for many leading nonprofits, has observed how individuals get involved. It's usually in response to them being impacted personally in some huge way. You know, I talk to a lot of people, this lovely man whose uh, son committed suicide, drug-related, and he's starting a big, uh, uh, you know, campaign to educate kids about not doing drugs, or the, the parents of the kids that were killed at Virginia Tech that we've worked with at my at my company that started the Virginia Tech Victims Family Outreach Foundation. You know, we, we go through this life a little bit anesthetized, and then something happens, and it wakes us up to the reality of a particular situation, and we get engaged in a big way. You know, in my case, I lost a lot of friends to AIDS. Uh, my partner committed suicide in 2000, and that caused me to research the issue and realize hey, we need some big mega event for that cause. I, I find that's a common thread. When you look at the Susan G. Komen Foundation, right? Nancy Brinker started it as a promise to her sister. Breast cancer. Yeah. In your, I'm sure by now, thousands of interactions with potential donors, what do you find is driving people to give? It feels great. It feels great to give. It's a paradox it's great for the self to do something selfless. <laughs> you know, there was a, a, a rabbi, uh, I can't remember his name, who said, uh, being kind to others is a way of being good to yourself. And I, and I think that's true. I think when, when people uh, do something extraordinary for others, 
they feel great about themselves. Dan Pilata's fundraising company, Advertising for Humanity, and a predecessor organization, Pilata Teamworks, have led major national campaigns for charities. They've staged mass events like bikeathons and walkathons that cumulatively have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Critics allege that the organizers have taken too hefty of a fee, leaving less funds to support actual services by the charities. Dan Pilata has pushed back with a book and hugely popular TED Talk video, arguing that it costs money to raise money. He also asserts that everyone involved in charity reaps some benefit, even donors. Giving to others kind of lights up the same reward centers in the brain as eating chocolate uh, or, you know, other, other pleasurable things. So I think, yeah, and I, I remember when my partner committed suicide, you know, he, he, was, he was very kind and he was very kind to others. And I remember the saying that when we are most broken is when we, were cl- we are closest to God. And during that period of grieving, I just felt compelled to do things for others. I would stop and help people with their flat tires. I would go buy flowers for homeless people. I would go buy a burger for the the kid that I was helping volunteer with in the, in the children's hospital. And it just felt incredible. You know, there was a certain euphoria about it. So there's there's definitely something going on in our brains about it which is great. I mean, I think it's great that we're wired to help one another. It would be really lousy if we weren't. Dan Pilata's message has drawn both fervent adherents, who say it's true that charitable giving can be personally gratifying, and conscientious detractors who believe that true charity should transcend self-gain. That debate, along with the ongoing question of how much charities should expend on fundraising tasks, are among numerous issues that crop up at the intersection of altruism and money. And they fill the pages of a fascinating newspaper, The Chronicle of Philanthropy, published in Washington. Its longtime editor is Stacy Palmer. One of the things we realized more than two decades ago was that nobody was really covering the world of philanthropy in the same way that they covered business or other important things in the world. There was maybe an occasional newspaper story about a charity gala. Maybe you'd see a story about a charity scandal, but there wasn't consistent kind of coverage and nonprofits weren't taken seriously as a big part of the economy, even though one in 10 people in America works for a nonprofit. Most newspapers didn't treat the organizations like that or take them seriously. So we wanted to establish the idea that this was an area of journalism that should be explored and that deserved its own newspaper. One in 10 Americans working in the nonprofit sector, who are we talking about, the one in 10 nonprofit workers? Absolutely. I think people don't realize how many organizations are nonprofit. So we're talking about colleges, hospitals, uh, those are the biggest employers. So anybody who works for in a In a college town, you might have both the college and the hospital, but then you have the art museum and you have the food bank and you have the religious organization. So environmental causes, advocacy groups, all the kinds of things that you can donate to and get a tax deduction, those are the kinds of organizations that we think of as being part of the charity world. Those are the 501c3s. There are more than a million of those.
One of the trends that has long been tracked in the chronicle of philanthropy is the level of giving by Americans, which pretty consistently hovers around 2% of people's disposable income. And of course, some individuals give nothing to charity. But of those who do, why is the percentage of income so modest? Stacy Palmer. One of the biggest reasons people don't give is that they're often not asked to donate to charity, and it's strange. Well, they've never seen my mailbox. (laughs) It's hard to imagine this um, because so many of us do feel that we're getting inundated with direct mail and social media requests for giving and all those kinds of things. I can only imagine this problem is multiplied tenfold for you. Uh, We do get a lot of requests for donations, but um, one of the things that even the very wealthiest Americans often say to us in interviews is, I didn't realize how much fun it was to give away money, and I really wish somebody had asked me earlier. And the fact that there are all of these nonprofit organizations, there are more fundraisers than ever in this country, and yet some people feel that they have never been asked to give away money. If you're accumulating wealth, it's very natural, or if you wish to accumulate wealth, to go to somebody that you think can handle money better than you can. Well, I'm, I, I've got some people where I'm saying you can give it away better than I can, so I'm turning it over to you, and, 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 and you'd do a better job of giving it away than I would. When Warren Buffett decided to give part of his fortune to Bill Gates and give that money away, many of the very wealthiest people in the country called the Gates Foundation and said, can we also give to you? We We'd love to do this, but we really don't know how to give money away. And that's how come you see things like the Giving Pledge and other ideas coming out of that. There's a great desire to give, but most people just don't know how and they haven't been told how to do it. It's not that wealthy people don't know how to make out a check, but Stacy Palmer says there are many factors, some of them complicated, that enter into decisions donors must make to be effective and efficient in charitable giving. What they haven't figured out is how to think about what they want to give to, nor have they thought about the kind of ambitious and exciting things that they might be able to give big portions of their wealth to. And once they learn about the kinds of things that they can achieve and do and how they can change society by giving money, they get very excited about it. Uh, But oftentimes nobody has come to them and given them the idea about what their money could do. Many wealthy people also want to give their advice, not just their money. Uh, And so when fundraisers give them that power of saying, you know, what is it that you want to change in the world and talk to them about how they can use both their expertise and their wealth, they often get very excited about it and want to give more. Recent IRS data show that Americans who earn $50,000 or less per year donate a higher percentage of their income than those earning $200,000 or more. In many cases, charity advocates say, those at the upper echelons could afford to dig a little deeper and still remain comfortable. One of the things that could really stimulate giving in a giant way is if people who aren't just the rich people like Bill Gates, but the plain affluent people, people who make $200,000 or more, if those kinds of people gave a lot more of their income to charity, then we would see tremendous increases in the billions of dollars that are given to charity every year. And I think I've seen figures that even a 1% increase by some of those donors could hugely improve the revenues of nonprofit charities. Absolutely. It's fairly easy to double the amount that individuals give to charity with just a small increase from people who are pretty well-to-do. And 
much of the charitable giving in this country, of course, comes from individuals and comes from people at all income levels. In this tough economy, many people feel that they don't have the wherewithal to really give much of anything. But I think in part, it's that charities haven't found effective ways to connect and explain to people what their giving will do. And so it's as much the nonprofit's fault, shall we say, as it is the donors themselves. Uh, I think most people, if they f hear a compelling story about a need, are willing to give. The storm surge just took everything and it's all gone. We lost it all. We flooded out, moved the house moved about how many feet? 200 feet or so. It was wiped out off the foundation. The foundation crumbled. We just, we had everything and it's just all gone now. If you look at disaster situations and look how generous Americans are as soon as they hear about something like a Hurricane Sandy happening and they want to go help people, they rush to do that sort of thing right away. But it's much harder for maybe the food bank that every day is serving people to be able to get the kind of money that it needs to operate. And as a matter of fact, food banks are one of the organizations that are incredibly strapped right now. They're seeing bigger increases than they've ever seen in history because this economy has not recovered at the pace everybody expected to. Increases in demand. Increases in demand and not increases in giving. And yet it doesn't really square that people are so willing to give you know, to a disaster. Or even if you look at something like after the Newtown shootings, um, people felt very upset by that. They wanted to do something. They wanted to comfort. And what did they think about? They thought about charitable donations as a way to help show their support. That shows a wonderful impulse in people to be able to help one another in part by giving money. They also gave things like teddy bears and other kinds of things like that that they, um, to the point where the town had to build a shelter to be able to put all of those goods that were sent. But it's a sign that certainly people are interested in giving if they know how to do it. And I think that's why we really haven't solved the problem of connecting the how people should do it versus the why they should do it. Well, I must say I find this all very surprising, but you've obviously given a lot more thought than I have. You seem to be saying that part of this is a kind of failure of imagination, that people just haven't taken the time to think through what the options could be for how much and how well they might be able to help others, and that the organizations that would carry out the work if funded have not as effectively solicited the donations. Absolutely. It's the nonprofit organizations. It's also the media in part because one of the things that why is giving after a disaster such a popular thing? When the media pays attention to a particular disaster, that's usually what attracts tons of donations. If the media doesn't pay attention to a crisis that is going on, then often causes don't get the kind of money that you might think that they should get. So I think one of the reasons that we need to see better coverage of social problems and the solutions is that that would be what would impel people to give. It's not just the charities that need to do that storytelling, but also the media. We're examining trends in charitable giving and the nonprofit world with Stacy Palmer, longtime editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more on this segment and to obtain an audio download, visit humanmedia.org.
One thing I notice is the low level of public discussion about the delicate choices involved in charitable giving. I personally find that the decision-making can be complex, how much to give, to whom, when, when not. Uh, but I don't hear much meaningful dialogue to help people work through some of these decisions. Do you see a gap there? Absolutely. It's very hard to know how to give and how to figure out which nonprofits are trustworthy, how to figure out what is the amount to give. Is it smarter to give to lots of different groups or to just channel your donations to one cause? There really isn't a lot of great advice out there. For the very biggest philanthropists, there's a whole cadre of philanthropy advisors who go around and tell you what to do. But if you're just an average person trying to make a donation, one thing you can go to is charity watchdogs that will tell you, you know, is 90 cents of your dollar going to the charitable cause versus to the fundraiser who's asking you for the money. And that's helpful, but that doesn't tell you whether the group that you're considering giving to is actually making a difference. So one of the movements going on in the world of philanthropy right now is to try to help people figure that out and try to encourage charities to report information on what results they're getting. And is that moving forward? It is moving forward. It's pretty tricky, in part because the work that charities do, sometimes it's very hard to quickly say, this is the kind of thing that happened. It's not like business where every quarter you can monitor what's going on. We're often trying to look at, is a nonprofit changing somebody's lifetime? Is somebody who is in a Head Start program better as an adult 20, 30, 40 years from now? So we need to look at results over a long period of time. But there are ways to do that, and there are lots of investments that are going on now in trying to figure that out. Um, charities are pretty nervous about that because there's a lot of competition for donations, and they're worried that if they're too honest about the times when they fail – and everybody's going to fail if you take a risk and if you're trying to solve some really tough problems, but should you admit that to a donor? So it, it's a hard area to get everybody to be truly honest about what's going on. Nonprofit organizations seem to be running on a constant treadmill of raising funds to support their charitable works. And when contributors donate to a cause, their contact information is routinely entered in a database from which the nonprofit follows up with additional requests for donations. Many people working at these organizations consider the pursuit of funds to be an unpleasant grind, and of course many donors feel besieged by endless solicitations. One of the things that some veteran fundraisers think would really help the charity world is to stop barraging people with direct mail and phone solicitations, and that that is the part of the charity fundraising business that needs to change. Because some people don't really like giving that way, and it does give charity a bad name, and the fundraisers themselves don't like doing that. Um, and yet, why are they doing Why it? do they do it? Because it works. People give. Um, and so sometimes when people will say, I would only like to get a solicitation four times a year, but what the charities do is they'll take a test and they'll send you a solicitation once a month and you might decide to give once a month. So you're really giving 12 times a year. Well, every time you do that, the fundraiser says, I, I'm going to figure out how many more times I can keep giving to you because it's working. And clearly you're not so upset that you're not giving me a donation. So why shouldn't I do what works? So that I think one of the things that fundraisers are trying to get a handle on is just how angry people are by some of these solicitations. But this really seems to me that there's something very wrong here. If the attempt to get people to support public-spirited, 
beneficent activities is actually getting the potential donors angry. There, there's, a, there's something broken in that. That's why I think what a lot of organizations are doing now is offering people very prominently ways to say, I don't want to, I only want to be mailed to once a year, or don't mail me at all, or don't call me, um, I'll call you. And, you know, I think the good nonprofits that are really effective fundraisers are listening to their donors and listening to that anger and finding other ways to do it. One thing that a lot of nonprofits are doing now is offering you the possibility of maybe a monthly charge on your credit card and saying, you know, you agree to this once a year, we'll check in with you and say, you know, do you want to continue doing that? But we'll just automatically deduct something from your credit card, but we won't solicit you and we will tell you what we're doing with your money. And I think that's one of the things that donors get frustrated about isn't just the number of times they're inundated with mail saying, please give. But what they don't hear often enough is, here's what we did with the money. Here's the difference it made. And so if charities can get better at talking about the results and what they're actually accomplishing, instead of just always having their hands out, I think it would serve the donor better and serve their cause better. One boon to charities has been the advent of donors contributing online. While most donations continue to be made by check, a recent annual survey of over 100,000 nonprofits by the Chronicle of Philanthropy showed more than 22 million donations being made online. And giving via the Internet continues to rise. I think one of the reasons that online donations have taken off isn't just that it's so easy, but it does mean that you as the donor feel that you're in control. You decide when you want to give, and it's very convenient instead of being barraged with all of that paper and those telephone calls and that kind of thing. So, And it also saves the nonprofit a great deal of money, and I think everyone likes that and the environmental friendliness of it. So it's just growing and growing. And some nonprofits are starting to get gifts as big as $100,000 online, so it's not just those $10 contributions by text message uh, that you know are very popular but no, don't necessarily finance a nonprofit cause. But some younger wealthy people in particular say that um, one of the things that stuns them when they give to a nonprofit website, sometimes the amounts they want to give are so large that the nonprofit can't process it and didn't expect that any donation would ever be that large. Um, so they call the nonprofit and say, we'd really like to give you $100,000. Can you make it possible? recent study found that rates of charitable giving are high among both liberals and conservatives, with progressives more inclined toward secular causes and conservatives donating more to church-related activities. But regardless of ideology, the majority of Americans make a point of supporting non-commercial causes. Nonprofit marketing consultant Dan Pallotta. I think that the nonprofit sector exists to help all those people for whom there is no other market mechanism coming. I have said that philanthropy is the market for love. So, you know, a lot of people now say that business will lift up the developing economies. You know, and you look at the proliferation of cell phones in Africa and what that's done economically, and that this new category of, of social business 
will take care of the rest, whether it's Tom's Shoes or, or other social enterprises, you know, environmental companies, solar energy companies, those kinds of things. And I do believe all of that, but I, I think that you're, you're always going to have, business is always going to leave 10% behind, and social business needs markets. And there are some issues for which you just don't have the kind of money measures you need for a market. How do you monetize the prevention of violence against women, for example? How are you going to measure the value of preventing that? It's very difficult. Nonprofits are created to serve society, not to serve uh, an investor as business has to make a profit. Uh, nonprofits have to pay their expenses, but they're not trying to put extra money into anybody else's purse. Stacy Palmer of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And so that gives them the freedom to decide how they spend their money in, in various ways and really focus on the hardest to serve people and making sure that they're not just serving them, but also an advocacy voice. That's one of the critical roles that nonprofits play, is speaking out uh, and making a difference in shaping public policy. So there are lots of different things that nonprofits do. We often think about them as things like the Red Cross and CARE and those kinds of organizations that are household names. But there are lots of tiny nonprofits that are providing services that really get lost by either government or business. And so when nonprofits are doing the best, they're filling those gaps. Are you saying that the smaller nonprofits may have more flexibility in their action and be able to bring things to the fore more rapidly than government, which, as we know, can sort of seem to take forever to get anything done? Absolutely. A nimble nonprofit can do all kinds of things. And in part, it's the small, scrappy ones that end up making the big difference. Something as simple as the white lines on the highways are something that came out of a nonprofit organization. It was a foundation grant many, many years ago when cars were just coming into being and they realized that there were all these accidents happening because people were not driving on different sides of the road. They were all crashing into each other. And somebody said, wouldn't it be a great idea if we put white lines in the middle of the highway? And a foundation made a grant to experiment with that idea. Um, things like drunk driving that we take for granted, um, that there's going to be a designated driver, that came out of a nonprofit campaign. So I think many of these ideas that are in our culture, we don't even realize that they came because a nonprofit came up with the idea, and often a wealthy donor of some sort decided that was worth making a bet on and putting the money behind it, sometimes small amounts of money, sometimes large amounts of money, but to come up with the idea and make a difference. How to make a difference with financial resources is not a challenge confined solely to decisions about where contributors donate their dollars. Certain charitable foundations, some with assets in the billions, are also looking at where they stockpile money before it's channeled into donations. One of the biggest areas in the nonprofit world that is changing is something called impact investing. And a lot of nonprofit endowments are thinking now about ways to use their money for the social good and not have it just go to investments in businesses that make their endowments grow, but to really think about their mission when they're investing their money. So one of the there's a foundation that just decided to put all of its assets into efforts that create jobs. And so anytime it's deciding where to invest its money, it's not just making grants to groups that are trying to create jobs, but it puts its money into businesses that create jobs. So the for-profit side of its activities 
are the same as its nonprofit mission. So what some people's nonprofit foundations are required to give 5% of their assets away and you know they get to average that over time. But what a lot of activists have been saying is, well, what happens to the other 95%? It mostly goes into the stock market. And so now there's a movement afoot to get more people to put that 95% into businesses that are making a difference or you know low-income loans or other kinds of things that would advance the mission that the nonprofit has. A very small number of foundations are starting to do this. It's not nearly as widespread as I think people hope it eventually will be, but there's now new attention on this whole area, and there are a lot of experiments going on at many of the very biggest foundations in the country to start thinking about that idea. Stacy Palmer of The Chronicle of Philanthropy, published in Washington. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1 800 5 Listen. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Generous Giving, is Humankind Program number 196. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.